This morning we're studying the book of Hebrews like we do every Sunday morning. We're in, we got one verse left in chapter 9, the very last one. Then we're going to go into Hebrews 10. So, that's what's up. But before we do that, let's begin with prayer. We're continuing to pray for Andrew Kaufman who's paralyzed and he's just had a real tough time and infections that won't heal and not been moved from facility to facility. He's a, probably about 20 years old, but he was paralyzed in a car accident. He's the grandson of one of our members. And Carl went to visit him the other day and, um, uh, it's just a tough situation. I thank God for Carl. He really went to bat for Andrew and talked to the nursing home and talked to Andrew and, I think we, I hope everybody realizes how blessed we are to have Carl. He's pretty, he's pretty special. I'm, I'm impressed with what he does. Hey, Dan. <laughs> now we're okay. We got our van here. We can start. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace and mercy you've shown us through Christ and the gospel. Thank you for Christian friends and fellowship for the fact that we can reach out to one another. And we have uh, someone who's very much hurting and needy, and that is Andrew, who's paralyzed. And Lord, that you'd uh, work in his heart and mind, help him to realize that there's always going to be problems and difficulties wherever he may be living. And Lord, we continue to pray for the healing of these sores, that he wouldn't get any more infections and that he could progress as far as what he's able to do. Lord, we, as we open your word, it's our honor to do so, and we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to be encouraged in our faith. So give us wisdom and understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 9, and the verse 28 is the one verse we have left to do. Hebrews 9, 28. So, Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We haven't read those cross-references yet, although we did discuss a little bit about the verse. We mentioned last week that the many is a reference, is an allusion to Isaiah 59, where the God's said the Messiah, uh, the servant of Yahweh, would pour, be poured out for many. Also referenced in um, Romans 5, the same phrase, the many. Notice that he's um, having been offered once. That's a theme in the book of Hebrews. Once, once for all, God sent Jesus who died once. And that one offering um, deals with the sin of all those who believe in Him, who trust Him, who trust His finished work for their salvation once for all. So that totally takes all conception of human effort or human works out of this or human merit because God did it all through Jesus Christ. Then it says, it talks about the second coming, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Let's talk about the tense of salvation here. How is it that we're already saved because it said he died once. He, he made the one payment, so that would be our salvation. So how is it that he's coming back a second time 
for salvation. Anybody? We've talked about it before. Keith? His atonement and his death and his blood the first time made a way that we could be saved from our sins and his appearance the second time will set the right temporal world that we live in so that we will experience salvation in a tangible way. In the fullest sense, the bodily resurrection, the the millennial reign of Christ in a perfect environment where Christ is actually literally reigning on the throne. So, I've mentioned this before. You can find this in Romans 5. We won't turn there now because I've said it many times. But in Romans 5, there are three tenses of salvation in regard to our sin. It's concerning the past. We are saved from the penalty of sin. Concerning the present, we are saved from the power of sin. As it will say in Romans 6, sin will not reign over us. Concerning the future, we shall be saved from the presence of sin. So, nice little, what's that called, an acrostic? What do you do when you have alliteration when you have, or acrostic? When you have three? Well, somebody here should know these things. <laughs> I'm supposed to know. I'm the teacher. All right. So, you can remember, okay, uh, penalty. Power, alliteration. alliteration, presence. That's the tenses of salvation. So when Christ returns without reference to sin, that's, I mean, we really learned that in his passage. So he'll appear a second time without reference to sin. Why? Because the first time he came and paid for sins. The second time he comes and delivers his people from all of the results of sin, including mortality, because we'll, have a, we'll receive an immortal resurrection body including any presence of sin tainting us, we shall be perfected. And so that's why there's a future. But it says, to those who eagerly await Him. I'm going to be preaching on this morning, the end of Matthew 24 and the beginning of Matthew 25. And we're going to talk about awaiting that, that actual a belief in the soon return of Christ is a motivating factor and is something that should be true for all true Christians, that we should be longing for His appearing. And if we're not even thinking about it, and we don't think it's ever going to happen, and we don't care about it, we like this life better, then we have reason to be concerned that we're actually false disciples. Amen. So, so hopefully, by God's grace, we're eagerly awaiting the Lord and His soon return. Because this world is sick. Amen. <laughs> Well, the third is important because your body is going to die corruptible yeah. and raised incorruptible. Amen. So we are, the flesh is corrupt. Within my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So thank God for the third part that will be raised incorruptible. Amen. Because a lot of us like to think we're incorruptible in the flesh now, but we're not. No. Well, there's some people that claim that the, the this latter rain movement was claiming they already had their resurrected bodies, but notice that they died. <laughs> their their main guy Branham was killed in a car accident. So that verse is so powerful. It is. I've never noticed that before. I've never you know gone past me. In this one? Yeah. The, without reference to sin. Without reference to oh, sin. Goodness. Amen. If, if we understand what sin is, yes. and then 
is taken care of. And, and it's all gone. We, we don't have to do anything anymore. Amen. Wow. All right. So we've got some great uh, references here. I don't know where to start this week. People sit in different places. So uh, we'll start by Richard. Yes. Yes, the let's. I'll give you a verse that'll help us do it, and you can read it. All right, uh, Isaiah fifty-three, eleven and twelve. I think the phrase is an allusion to this passage in Isaiah, and that's why the many is here. And it also, I think, guards against universalism, the idea that everybody's saved automatically without actually repenting and putting their faith in Christ. There are people that teach that. Ultimate wreck, ultimate reconciliation. Your buddy used to teach that before you decided to become an atheist, anyhow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteousness. Yeah, you notice twice it mentions the many there, right? Many. And um, in the Old Testament, I mean, it's a really important Messianic prophecy, but they would be thinking more globally. See, in the Old Testament, Messiah is going to come and save Israel. All right? So you would think, well, he'll save the whole nation. And that's what's going to happen. But in Isaiah... Between chapters 42 and 53, we have, first of all, the idea that he's going to come to bring salvation to the nations, not just to Israel. And now here in the important passage in chapter 53, he is saving the many, that not the all, but the many. Now, when we get into the New Testament, we get more clarity about that. And Paul talks about in Romans 9 that it always was a remnant that was saved, even in the Old Testament scheme of things. And though the uh, people would be as the sands of the sea, the remnant shall be saved, it says. So the many would be the ones who actually participate in this salvation. Okay, um, but see, in this, in the, in the context, the, the way it's, it's used in Isaiah isn't to suggest that the majority are going to be saved. It's not most. It's not most. It's just narrowing it down from all to many. Alright? That's the, that's the key idea. And it's in the same phrase is used in Romans 5 where Paul talking about those that are in Christ. And it is the many in the sense that 
it's not just Israel. It's not even all in Israel. It's just a remnant in Israel. But it's also a remnant that God would gather from amongst the Gentiles from all the nations. So ultimately there are many, but in, in, in a, compared to how many don't believe, it's a small amount. That's how I understand it, yes. Could you use the word elect in there also? It, 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 would, it certainly would. What is that verse that you quoted, Dan, here when he was saying that? Many are... Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. That was also, I think that's in Matthew, is it? What is that? Yeah, I think that's in Matthew. So, anyhow, the, what, however you conceive of it, it's talking of the people who actually come to faith in Christ. There's no salvation outside of faith in Christ. Right. That's in Romans 5, right? Yep. Yep. Romans 5 uses the same term. Alright, so we narrow it down to the many, not all, but it's talking about people who have come to faith and the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. Alright, now let's look at some others. Uh, Olga, you want to read one? Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. And, alright, you just told me, I'm sorry, sir, I forgot your name again. Jim, that's right. I was going to say that, but I didn't want to be wrong. Matthew twenty six twenty eight, Scott John fourteen three, Sherry, you don't want to do one. Okay, we'll skip you. Um, Sam, <laughs> Sam, Romans eight twenty three, Norma, Philippians three twenty and twenty one. Uh, Linda, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, uh, Pete, 1 Thessalonians 14.14-17, 14, 14 through 17. let's do those and i got a few more. John 14.3, okay, uh, Olga. By his stripes we are healed. <laughs> so there's the substitutionary atonement prophesied in the Old Testament. And notice the tense there. It's, it's, it's called the prophetic perfect. But it says, he was bruised for our iniquities, even though it's yet future from their point of view. And that prophetic perfect means is spoken of as absolutely certain, as if it already happened. An illustration of that would be, let's say you're watching... Uh, the Super Bowl day, and it turns out to be a blowout. And it's in the third quarter, and one team's down by 48 to 7. I'm not predicting this, by the way. <laughs> but let's just say that did happen, and the announcer says, this game is over. Literally, it's not true. There's still a quarter to go, but it's sort of like the prophetic perfect. 
All right, so it says when he was bruised for our iniquities, it's so certain you can say it as past tense, even though it's yet future from Isaiah's time. That would be that same use. Okay, Jim, uh, Matthew twenty six twenty eight. The blood of the new covenant. That was Jesus at the Last Supper saying that his blood was the blood of the new covenant. For the sins of how many? For who? The sins of many. (laughs) There that is again. So we have it in Isaiah. We've got it in Romans 5. We have it in Hebrews 9. And we have it in Matthew 26. The many. (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, then Matthew, no, John 14 and verse 3. Very, very important promise. Where I am, there you may be also, I think it says in the other versions. Romans 8.23 Okay, so people who are have the Holy Spirit groan waiting eagerly for this ultimate salvation. Amen. There's a good reason for that. Because the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, Trinity, God the Spirit, who indwells the Christian, is holy and provokes within us a desire for holiness, a desire to be like Christ, and it also creates enmity between us and the world. Amen. All right, because the world is so opposed to the things of God. So any truly spirit-filled Christian is grieved in this world. Amen. It's it's just part and parcel. Because when you don't know the Lord, you might be sad because everything's not so great, but you're basically one with the world. You don't have the same conflict. Yes? I was thinking several years back when my mother used to witness to me and ask me if I was going to church yet. And we've talked about several different things, but (coughs) one of the things I would say to her is, well, why is this wrong? The whole world is doing it. And to me, it seemed like a logical stepping stone to uh, justify my behavior. If the whole world's doing it, it can't be bad. Well, if the whole world is doing it, it can't be bad. That is my thinking. Yeah. But at the same time, if the whole world is doing something from a from a, a Christ-like point of view, there's a good chance that should be a, a red flag. <laughs> that should be a red flag. Yeah. I know when when we were raising our kids when they were still in our home. The one argument they knew to never bring to us was everybody else is doing it. They, they probably just never even said that because it would invoke a lecture every time I would tell them about the sin nature and why everybody doing it is probably a good reason not to. So they just finally came home and said, well, we should do this. Why? Well, because, never mind. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's certainly not where you get moral guidance. You've got to go to the Bible to find out what's right and wrong. If you look at what everybody's doing, it's not a very good situation. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Norma. For our citizenship is in heaven, 
who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has given to subject all things to himself. Wow. That's absolutely the same idea that we eagerly, we have citizenship in heaven, so that makes us pilgrims here, right? Aliens. Amen. We're pilgrims and aliens. We have citizenship in heaven. We're waiting for our Savior eagerly. And when He comes again, according to that passage, He's going to transform this corruptible mortal body uh, into an incorruptible one because of His great power to subject all things unto Himself. So, you know, something gets repeated often in the Bible. What does that mean? Pay attention. It's important. All right. So, uh, so much for people who say, well, you know, looking for Christ's return and is, is not important. And it, um, some people have, I've heard this phrase, you're guilty of eschatological escapism. That's what you always say. <laughs> yeah. Let me unpack that. What they're saying is, well, you, you, you're such a weak person that you can't function in this world, so you're looking for escape. So you want Jesus to return. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I am weak. Guilty. <laughs> I, would, I would say in rebuttal, if you don't want to escape, then there's something wrong. You must love the world. We're, I'm going to preach on it. I don't want to get ahead of myself. It's in Matthew 25. They, they, uh, it says they are partying with the, the drunkards and Jesus is going to come back when they don't think so. Yeah, it's going to be bad. Okay, uh, Linda, you have 1 Thessalonians 1.10. They tell how you turn to God from idols and worship the one true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's another... Uh, Another um, aspect of this, it says, who, to wait for His Son from he- heaven who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen. So Christians are rescued from wrath. Amen. So when Christ returns, there's two things that are going to happen. His own are going to be rescued, redeemed, raised, <laughs> glorified. Amen. And those who have spurned the gospel are going to be facing God's wrath. Amen. Again, we're going to talk about that in Matthew. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, 14 through 17. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God bring, will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I like that. You know, it's, it's, even 18 right after that, you know, therefore comfort one another with these words. You know, and it's funny because I 
I, I'm around other believers and other Christians. And it's funny when I make the comment that I'm impatient to get home. And, and even with a comment like that, it's, I don't understand how they don't understand me saying that. I don't, I don't know why they're, 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 going, they're going to be going home too, and they're living in the same world I am right now. But I just, it's, it strikes me funny sometimes when people, you know, lift the brow when I make the comment. Okay. Well, you know, that's a good point. And Pete was saying that there are a lot of people who think it's odd that we long for the return of Christ. Um, for one thing, it's changed, I think, in the evangelical culture. Because when I became a new Christian in 1971, and I started going to church where they were preaching the Word of God, they were always talking about that. In fact, even it was common lingo that for in, in Sheldon, Iowa, where I was a new Christian, and I went to this little Pentecostal church, the people who led our family to the Lord, um, they'd say, next week there'll be a church picnic in the park, should the Lord tarry. <laughs> now, you remember that terminology? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the songs that we sang in the little Pentecostal church reflected the idea of longing for the Lord's return, and there were many of them. Um, and uh, when the roll is called up yonder. <laughs> uh, in fact, a little church in Ames where I was attending when I went down to witness at the Iowa State campus when I, after I went to Bible college, I went back down to where I used to go to college to witness to the fellow students I used to have. And Sunday night service, Reverend Hilton Griswold who was a former piano player for the Blackwood Quartet in the 30s and 40s. Um, he was the pastor of this church, and he had a big clock like we have here with a big sweep hand, and he'd sit at the piano on Sunday night, church started at 7, he'd sit right there, he'd watch the clock. Second hand hits 12, 7 o'clock sharp, Boom! The piano started. And it was always when the roll was called up yonder. <laughs> and he played that piano. I'm telling you, there wasn't a key on it that didn't get hit somewhere along the line. And we had, we had church. And, and so in those early days in my life, I noticed how the Christians were always talking about the return of the Lord. And then what happened was this other teaching came in in the 80s. Um, see, these these were the people the people that I knew as an early brand new Christian. They were always kind of the poor people, the ones on the wrong side of the tracks. And the only hope they had was the world to come because they didn't have much going for them in this world. And their songs and their and their preaching reflected that idea. But they had the Lord, and so they were rich. Well, what happened was uh, our movement became popular and successful, and we got TV preachers, and we got health and wealth preachers. And we've got money and we've got cathedrals and power and clout and social influence. And suddenly the idea of the soon return of the Lord became some quaint, antiquated thing that people that didn't have anything going for them thought about. And I think that what's happened, Pete, is that evangelicalism has become focused more on the here and now because we have more going for us in the here and now. 
and and all of a sudden this other thing just looks like escapism or some weakness or something. And I'll tell you, those people weren't weak in their faith. They longed for the Lord's return. Yes, I've gotten emails from people around the world, even in the continent of Africa, a number of them where these false teachings are coming into the from America, and they're they're proclaiming, well, if you come to Jesus, that's your chance to get out into the middle class or the upper upper class. Um, so I think that there's another thing that I've been I just finished writing an article on the seven churches in Revelation, and that's going to be published in a couple of weeks. And in, in my study on those seven churches, as I was writing the article, I noticed that the two churches that were commended without any rebuke, which was Smyrna and Philadelphia, were both very small. One of them says you have but little power. They, they were persecuted. And, in fact, uh, part of the reason they were poor in this one church is because in order to become wealthy, you had to participate in pagan rituals that had to do with uh, the trade guilds and what have you. And, and yet they're commended by the Lord. And never once in all of those seven churches, I carefully went through all seven, never once did Jesus ever commend a church for being big. He never commended a church for being popular. But he, in fact, he rebuked um, the Laodicean church because they thought they were. He said, you think you're wealthy and rich and have need of nothing. Um, But he commended churches for being faithful in their confession. And he promised that he was returning. And so, shall we uh, join with the many Christians down through the centuries who long for the Lord's return. And let's resist this temptation to have such a popular religion that we can have everything we need in the here and now. Um, even if we are wealthy, our life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. Amen. It says that in Luke 12. Well, we had some more verses to look up because this one was so rich. Phyllis, could you look up Titus 2.13 and Mark 1 John 3.2? Okay. Titus 2.13. I think it might say something about the blessed hope. Maybe it does. Titus 2.13. Um, Titus 2.13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us. Amen. So here the return of Christ is called a blessed hope. We need to keep that in mind. And he purifies the people. We're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, 1 John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. 
We'll be like him because we'll see him. He's going to come back and transform us into his image completely. Well, Peter says we believe in him and we have not seen. And uh, I think that the passage before the one Mark read, it said that it does not yet appear what we shall be. What does it say in verse? Do we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him? We shall see him as he is. Oh, I'm sorry, right before that. Yeah. It does not yet appear what we shall be. It does not yet appear. So there's this unknown future, and it has to be taken by faith. I think part of the temptation of becoming just temporal-minded only, is that well, we see this world and we see the pleasures and what, what we want here. This, all, this other thing we have to take by faith. We haven't seen it. That's true. Because we dwell in an unapproachable light that no man has seen or can see. <laughs> okay, let's go to chapter 10. Look at that. we got a whole chapter under our belt. <laughs> Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews 10. It's going to take us a while to get through this chapter because it's a long one. But have we ever been in a hurry to get to the next verse? You know, Pastor, I was sick and you talk about wanting to meet the Lord, and I understand that. The Apostle Paul had a great conflict with that because he knew that he would die and meet the Lord. Or I die today, I'll be with the Lord. But Paul's conflict was he was concerned about the lost. And that's what I told old timers when I was in the Baptist church. You wanted the Lord to come back, and I understand that, but I wouldn't have been there. Peter came, and you wouldn't have been there, Peter, if it would have been had their way. So I thank God we've been in the tribulation, suffering something terrible. So I thank God that God's got his timing. And then when Paul, a lot of times you want things, because if we were going to go to jail for 40 years for something we did as a Christian, We'd want the Lord to come back the first day because we wouldn't want to time in 40 years. You know, that's how you look at it. And Paul was in great conflict about this because he wants to be with the Lord, and we do. But what about your little daughter? Or what about your brother? What about your mother that doesn't know the Lord? See, so there's a conflict there. Yes, I want to be with the Lord right now. I do. But yet, it, let it be up to the Lord in His time, because His timing's perfect when the last one's going to get saved, because we're always trying to hurry up God, because in heaven it says, Lord, when are you going to use your wrath on the earth? The blood of the Lamb, punish them, wrath on them. Notice, they're not asking for mercy in heaven. You mean that that's the, the martyrs? Yeah, the martyrs, because the martyrs. of what this world has done. It's so wicked that you can't help but want God's judgment. Well, yeah, unless you love the world. Yeah, unless you love the world. And the world system, even the evil of the world system, the man that retired from the World Bank, he's not a Christian, wrote a book. He says, the world system is based on lust, greed, and power. So Alvin said, Lord, I, how can America be bad? I love the world. I love America. That's not how the world America is just as much of the world system as the rest of the country because they're a bunch of deists. They weren't all uh, trusting in Christ, proclaiming Christ. As Dias, the higher power, sure there were a certain amount of Christians, but it still was a remnant. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Another one is whosoever. You know what? People want to get out of 
the wrath of God. You know what whosoever entails? The guy would say, that don't include me because my name's John Smith. There's a thousand John Smiths. But God said, whosoever. John R. Smith, John A. Smith, David Anderson, David R. So there's no excuse <laughs> this world's God. Well, you know, uh, Dan, as you were mentioning there, Peter, Second Peter 3 says the reason for the delay is God's patience. Patience and suffering yeah, and love. Right. We want to hurry God up sometimes. And God knows what's in our heart. So, and Paul wanted, nobody wanted to go more than Paul, but he was going to get killed. But yeah, yet he knew he'd be in the Lord. That was in Philippians. So we can get with the Lord right now. We can volunteer, go over to missionary work, and be killed within a month if we're in a real world hurry. <laughs> that's that's true. You know what, I'm Dan? I'm not joking. I know. I'm not joking. Dan, Dan uh, John MacArthur said, they asked MacArthur if he believed in pre-trib rapture. And, and it's my favorite quote about the rapture. MacArthur says, um, I'm not going through the tribulation. And they, and they said, well, how do you know? And he says, well, e- either there's a pre-trib rapture, in which case I don't go through the tribulation, yeah. or if there's not, the first day of the tribulation, I'm going to get it on a plane, I'm going to fly over to Antichrist headquarters and preach the gospel to him. <laughs> either way, I don't go through the tribulation. <laughs> so, all right, I'll get you out of here in a hurry. I understand where you're coming from, Peter. You long for the Lord. I understand that. I don't want the rapture coming quick and all that. That was the point. No. The point was just in general. In general, right. They don't understand. You know, yeah. They don't. They honestly don't understand the rapture. They don't understand a lot of these things. Well, well, you know, uh, you're right about the thing about our circumstances sometimes determine how much we long for the Lord's return. If we were going to go to jail, we probably want Him to come back now. I mean, I used to joke when I was in Bible college, if somebody got engaged and their wedding was like in two weeks, I'd say, well, I hope the Lord comes back before that. My person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I love the Lord more, but... (laughs) I'm not trying to be mean, but I just, you know, the whole... uh, That's why God knows our hearts. Dean. I've been told by some people at work that I work with that have witnessed too that I've, I've got somewhat of a death wish because I you know, desire to be in heaven with God. And that it's just the opposite. I have an eternal life wish. <laughs> a life wish, they yeah. Are, they are the people that are working on the death wish. <laughs> okay, Hebrews 10. Let's get going here <clears throat> with this uh, next chapter. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Okay, so we have some concepts that we've been talking about throughout Hebrews. Drawing near, or we, we, we talked about that before, how did he draw near to God through the blood atonement. But here it talks about this shadow um, and it would be that which is imperfect or incomplete. And the passage, there's another passage that uses the idea of shadow that's, that we find in the New Testament. Um, we got a couple of new people that I don't know, so I can't tell you your name. Do you want to read a passage? Who? Edie? Heidi. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. That's a passage that talks about the shadow as well. Colossians 2, 17? 16 and 17. 
for a noon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. All right, so you get the idea of the shadow and the substance. Amen. And so the Old Testament, earlier in Hebrews, we saw that the Old Testament tabernacle is built after the pattern of the heavenly one, or the true tabernacle. Here we have the idea that the things they were doing in the Old Testament, which prefigured in type what Christ would do, the shedding of the blood of the animals is a type of the blood of Christ. The, the worship that they had was a type ultimately of heavenly worship. And so the shadow, Christ would be the substance and, and these things would be the shadow. And if you have the substance, why would you go back to the shadow? Amen. Is the basic argument. It would be very foolish to do so. Amen. Right? Good things to come. As talking about, as we were saying, what's, what's yet lies ahead. Um, can never, by the same sacrifices, um, make perfect those who draw near. So what's the difference in regards to the sacrifices in the Old Testament as far as their effect on the people? Temporary. They had to repeat continually. Teaching tools? Okay. Yeah, they understood the necessity of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And they understood the seriousness of sin. Amen. Yes, Keith. Okay. It'll be a slaughter. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes, Tyler. That's what it says. Yeah, the difference between the external and the internal. Uh, yeah, the sa- the sacrificial animals were showing that you need a substitute. And we, when I preached on Isaac, I talked about that. that. That whole idea of the substitute in this narrative of Isaac, where God provided a substitute for Isaac, and it turns out to be the ram. And then from then on, later, and when the law is established, they always had a substitute. If you don't have a substitute, then God comes and makes a sacrifice, and you're the sacrifice. Ultimately, in judgment, yeah. Okay, so this is talking about Christ's work uh, as perfect and complete, 
Whereas this other is foreshadowed the ultimate reality, which is Christ once for all sacrifice. Once for all, very important. That's what makes Christianity different than all the other world religions. Amen. Once. That there's a completion that we can receive by faith rather than work, 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 work and never quite get there. All, 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 100%. One time we were having an apologetics meeting and there was a professor of world religions there. And somebody asked the question, is the Christian doctrine of grace unique amongst the world religions? Amen. And this guy who's not that, I don't know how conservative he was. Um, he was from Augsburg. Very brilliant guy. And so here, this professor sat there and thought about it, you know, because here's this guy in his head, he's got all his world religions that he studied all his life. Is there another religion that has the concept of salvation by grace? And he says, well, there's this little tribe in Africa, but no, it really wasn't the same. There, there, he, there was no other world religion that had the idea of salvation by grace the way the, the Bible does, yes. Oh yeah, I wanted to. Thanks for reminding me. Keith has a story to share. He got a chance to witness to a Muslim. Tell her story. What he believed, and he was uh, saying, I believe in the Torah, and I believe in the Gospels, and I believe in the Quran. You believe in the resurrection? No. It was very, very. You know, quick, and he says, we were talking about he believed in a God of love. He was from a Muslim sect that was appalled with what was going on in the Middle East. In fact, he worked for the Defense Department. Okay. Which he was uh, believed in a loving God. He believed in the wrath to come. He believed in a lot of things, but this, you know, this Christianity, I just don't get it. Especially this atonement. I mean, that was the resurrection and the concept of atonement was something that he couldn't conceive of because we have to Pay for our own. Yeah. Yep. We have to pay for our own. We couldn't get that concept. It was a foreign thing to him. Great story. So, so Keith got a chance to, you know, one on one share with a Muslim, and it comes down to the atonement and the resurrection. Amen. And here's why it's significant. Yes. Well, I, I've done many years within the Muslim community, and one of the struggles with the atonement is that it's not Oh, the virgin birth. So you get this to be yes. of a, the Trinity because for them, it's a, very, it's a monotheism and, and the Trinity concept is very difficult because of God. There's this, the concept that God can be created, like Jehovah's Witnesses, is, they, will, they reject that straight out. No, God had to exist from all eternity to be God, otherwise he's not God. Well, that's a good theistic definition of God. So then we have to argue that Jesus did fit that definition. So you're talking about the deity of Christ. Let me, before I get to you, I want to make an application. Just when Keith called and told me that story, I was working on my presentation for Tuesday night on what's wrong with the purpose-driven gospel, alright, that I'm going to do up at Rock Creek. And I was I was making the PowerPoint slides, just taking stuff that uh, Rick Warren said you needed to believe to be saved. And I was just taking off of page 58. You need to believe that God loves you. You need to believe you're important to God. 
Uh, and, and if I was going down this list of what Rick Warren said you need to believe, what we needed to believe was all about us. In a sense, you're almost putting your faith in yourself, although God's mentioned. In other words, I believe I'm loved. I believe I'm important. I believe God cares about me. And um, there wasn't anything in these so-called required beliefs that was distinctively Christian. And when then Keith called and told me that story, the, the Muslim would have believed those things that Rick Warren says. Yes, you, he yeah, he had, so here you have a Muslim that believes all the things that Rick Warren says you need to believe to be saved. So what he's doing is taking out what he takes out of his gospel are exactly the things that where Christianity differs with every other religion. And when you take those things out, it becomes acceptable. And on uh, O'Reilly's show, I have a video of Rick Warren on O'Reilly's show saying that Muslims and Hindus are reading his book and are, are uh, liking it. Well, of course, it doesn't offend. It's not. It's a non-offensive gospel. But if you bring, and he'll even talk about the cross, but here's how Rick Warren describes the cross. Jesus' hands are on the cross. He's saying, I love you this much. Now, wait a second. But how is anybody going to understand the significance if they don't realize why he needed to die on the cross? Amen. There's no blood atonement. There's no wrath of God to be adverted. And so you just you get this vague idea that Jesus loves us this much. But, what, but why? Why do I need a cross? And why would God kill his own son? What does that got to do with? If you don't see, if you explain it from a biblical perspective, then you offend people. Amen. But some people will be saved. So I'm going to claim Tuesday night up at Rock Creek that this is a different gospel and it won't save. No, it won't. What were you going to say? Very much along the same lines. I this is like five years ago. I ran into and I actually wrote an article about this in CIC once. I ran into a Newsweek article. It was about it was called Visions of Jesus. And it says how Jews, Muslims, and Christians view Jesus. And this guy, I don't think, I mean, I, I think he's, he's liberal. I, I don't know where he's from. He's, he's liberal. But the conclusion of the article was the, the thing that differenti- differentiates the, the Jesus of Christianity from all the Jesus. You know, all religion, a lot of, most religions have nice things to say about Jesus. Yes, they do. The one thing that distinguishes it is the cross. And they, Amen. And Amen. they quoted like the, uh, the uh, I can't remember his name, can't pronounce it either, but he ended up saying, uh, you know, the, the cross is a painful image to me. It doesn't do justice to Jesus. That was his quote about the cross. And then, of course, getting back to uh, Islam, is they don't really, they don't believe Jesus went to the cross. I don't know if you know this. Jesus believed 120 years. They, they believe that, I think one of the legends is Simon actually got signed who and how Jesus carried the cross actually got nailed. So I mean you, you see you can see how the, the, I mean talk about a, a way to get away from the cross. Yeah. But it, the cross is where grace is because we, we don't do anything with the cross. This is it's one hundred percent the work of Christ. Right. The empty tomb. All right. When Paul says the word cross, that's in like First Corinthians chapter one. What what that really is entailing is the whole work of redemption, including the resurrection. The cross is a shorthand way of saying 
the incarnation, the sinless life, the substitutionary atonement, the shed blood, the, uh, the propitiation, the expiation, the resurrection, the ascension. That's the whole work of God's salvation in Christ. Summed up in the cross. Amen. Everything about the atonement. Right. Now, I have a... Um, one of Jan Markell's board members sent me a tape that is from MacArthur talking about this very issue of the seeker movement. And MacArthur hit all the same points of what we're talking about. He says, what's lacking? Here you have somebody saying, if you believe these things, you'll be saved. And there's no, not even a resurrection in there. Wow. And it says clearly in Romans 10 that you must confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead to be saved. So how can you have a gospel message with no assertion of the resurrection? <laughs> yeah, and well, he says you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross. Okay, but everybody believes Jesus died on the cross. Not everybody's saved. No. That's the ultimate New Age Christ is itself. Yep, that's the New Age Christ. Well, that's <laughs> it's a Babylonian order, yeah. Well, here, let me, so to get focused on this, gospel preaching has to include the things that are unique to Christianity. Amen. That's my pet peeve. I hear, I hear these people say, "Come to Christ, you'll have a better marriage. Come to Christ, and you'll have more happiness. Come to Christ, you'll have less stress." Come to Christ. Well, maybe some of those things are true in some cases, or maybe even many cases, but it's nothing unique. You can get rid of stress without being a Christian. You can have a better marriage without being a Christian. You can have a wonderful, happy life. That email I got from your atheist yeah. friend. Yeah. His, fr his. I'm not blaming you oh. for him. <laughs> <laughs> Dad has been witnessing to this guy who used to be a pastor who's now an atheist. And he gave me one of my articles, so the guy emailed me, and this atheist says, since I've renounced my Christianity and renounced Christ, I'm happily married, I've become wealthy, I've got a family that loves me, and my life has never been better, so what are you telling me that I'm lacking? Well, what he's lacking is atonement for his sins. Okay, and so if we preach a gospel that's not unique to Christianity... If we preach a gospel that you could have other ways of receiving what we say you're going to get, people say, okay, I'd like to have a better marriage and I'd like to get off of drugs or whatever my problem is. But, you know, I have friends that got off of drugs and they never became a Christian. I have people, I know friends that have good marriages and they don't serve God. So why should I have to go to church to get these things? Hard to find a good gospel track. Good gospel track that covers all of the, you know, some of them will cover some of the essential differences where you have unique points yeah. of, of the faith. But uh, none of them have found one that covers them all. Huh. Like truncated gospels, like having a diet with no vitamin C. I'm going to use that. I'm going to borrow that. Keith came up with a perfect illustration for me to use at the at the at the conference up in uh, Rock Creek. 
you take you take purpose-driven life. There are many Christian truths in there. There's all kinds of Christian truths that we would agree with. But Keith gave an illustration. He said it would be like these sailors back before they understood this, and they'd get scurvy because they had no vitamin C. They had all, they had all the food they needed for however long they're going to be out at sea, but they didn't know what we know today. And so they'd get scurvy because there was no fresh fruits. fruits. Yeah, you could actually, you could actually die from scurvy. And so I'm going to say that if you, if you have a purpose-driven life church with a purpose-driven life gospel, you're going to get spiritual scurvy. <laughs> also, in his covenant, you cannot challenge him, but yet I've talked to these people and they say, uh, what's a Berean? They don't know the Berean. Berean challenged Paul, but in their covenant with this gentleman, you cannot challenge him because you upset the church. But yet the Apostle Paul was challenged by good Bereans and they don't even know what Bereans are, these people that follow him. Well, they don't have a Bible. Okay, uh, okay. anyhow, um, I guess we got to be done here. The, the sermon is going to be, as I said, on the uh, parables concerning readiness because the Lord may return at any moment, and we better be right with Him, or we're in trouble. So that's the, that's the section. And uh, we have a time of fellowship, and the church starts at 10.30. God bless.